0: And now, it's time for Dr. Bill,
1: your Radio M.D. Hey, I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio M.D., recovering still from my recent abdominal surgery. And last week, I broadcast from my hospital bed at St. Pete General Hospital. Give those guys a little shout-out for being so good to me. And I thought today, since I don't have a guest, I would share my ordeal with you. Uh, But first, we have to put it into perspective of, let's look at these boys that are trapped in this cave in Thailand have been there for two weeks and now they're starting to bring them out. They've just brought out the first two or three and within the past hour. And you think about these kids two weeks, no food in the dark (laughs) thinking they're going to die. And, uh, when the divers got in there, they were in apparently pretty good spirits. So, you know, you got to keep your head up in life. That's, that's the bottom line and never give up hope. And, People said to me, did it hurt? Weren't you afraid? You know, all those things are not relevant once you make it through the tunnel, whether the tunnel is a real cave with water and passages or whether it's a major problem in life, like major surgery with complications and being in the ICU. So you make it, you make it. And uh, that's the bottom line. And like Bill said before the show, horseshoes and hand grenades are the only thing that count and close, of course, nuclear bombs too. You want to try to avoid that, get, get at least 50 to 100 miles away from the epicenter. So let me tell you about my ordeal. It's it's fascinating. I, even I am amazed at what I went through. So it was Thursday, three weeks, three weeks and a couple of days ago that I I went in for a ventral hernia repair. And A ventral hernia is uh, a hernia in the belly wall. So if you've feel that little notch in your breastbone, and you just follow your breastbone straight down to the bottom of it, and you feel there at the bottom, There's that's your xiphoid process at the bottom of your breastbone, and then if you just take your finger and run it straight down through your belly button down to your suprapubic area, then that's the ventrum of the belly wall, the anterior of the belly wall, and what happens is there's two big muscle muscles that go up and down the six-pack, the, the abs, we call them, Uh, The kids call them six-packs because they ripple like a six-pack when you do a lot of good exercising. So there's a midline connection that's just connective tissue. It's fibrous tissue like nylon. And over time with weight gain and age and hard work and stress, that can tear apart. And then the contents of the abdomen, which is the inside part of your belly where your guts are, and the sack that surrounds it and the fatty tissue that's on top of it and beneath it, that can protrude out into uh, the skin. And the reason that I wanted to get this done at this time is because I didn't want to wait till I was 80 years old. This is not a benign procedure. Uh, If you're younger, it's easier to get through it. But I have seen complications and I've even had a patient die in his 80s who had a repair of a ventral hernia. And you say, well, why did you send him for surgery? Well, he was having constipation, which tells me that he was having intermittent blockages of his bowel. How does that happen? Well, if the bowel comes out into the hernia, along with the fatty tissue and the lining around the bowel, then it can be strangulated or it can be compressed. If it gets trapped outside of the abdomen, the abdominal wall, and it's just the skin that's holding it in. We call that incarceration. It's jailed. And if it gets cut off to where it's not getting a blood supply because the muscles of the belly squeeze tight, then that's uh, when you have uh, strangulation. And it's exactly how it sounds. You're strangling the bowel so it can't get any blood and it can die. And then that's a life and death situation. So before you get to that stage of having a life and death situation, You and your surgeon or your doctor need to consider what the alternatives are and the repair of this, the repair can be uh, with mesh. Now the mesh has gotten a lot of bad publicity recently and there's some dissolvable mesh which probably doesn't work as well as just sewing the two muscle bodies back together and pushing everything back into the belly. And it's a fascinating situation that... Because of the size of mine, he had to do both an open and laparoscopic. What's that mean? Well, he had to cut down the midline of my belly, roughly from my belly button up to my xiphoid, my chest, in order to affect the, the repair. He also had to put a couple of holes on the sides so he could put his uh, his scopes in there. You can put flexible scopes in there and, and tools so that he could attach the sutures to the far side of the rectus that would be on the on the on the side of your belly and pull it all together and he had to have visualization through the open wound too so he filled me full of holes and one of the holes sprung a leak a week after I came home from the hospital i was in the hospital for initially for a week so i went in on a thursday had the surgery done and Thursday night, I was put out on the surgery floor, which was probably not the best idea. Uh, I probably should have been in the intensive care unit, and I don't know who made that decision or why, but uh, it is what it is. And so I got out there, and the floor nurses really had not seen somebody with this type of problem. I'd also had a sleeve resection of my stomach so that I would lose weight, which will help with the hernias. They'll be less fat and also if you have sleep apnea. Now, if you're morbidly obese, this is a procedure that we do. So the first part of the procedure that was done is the surgeon went in there with his scopes, and he took out about two-thirds of my stomach, and it's a really cool uh, instrument that they use. It cuts and sews at the same time. It also cauterizes. That is, it stops the blood uh, from leaking out. It, It it basically pinches off or burns the, the ends of the blood vessels. So this one little instrument, as you snip along, it cuts, it cauterizes, and it sutures with titanium staples the two parts of the stomach, the part that remains inside and the part that is being pulled out that's being removed. So I had a reduction of my stomach size, and the theory behind this is is that you'll eat less, and you'll take in less calories, and you'll feel... Satiated, You'll feel full earlier so that you don't sit there and gorge yourself. It doesn't work for everybody. There's a lot of morbidly obese people who just eat right on top of it. But I've seen it work in people, and it usually gives them about 8 or 10 years of reduced weight. And that's exactly what I wanted as I approach my 70th year. I wanted to make it to 80, still riding my bicycle, still being active, and not having bowel caught outside in a hernia and strangulated and have to go in for emergency surgery, which certainly raises your risk of, of death and of morbidity, of, of having chronic problems. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I did it. But here I am. I'm post-op. They put me out on the floor. The nurses are not familiar with the procedure, and when you course when you cut the stomach you're going to have swelling and it swelled up right where the food tube and the stomach meet and the nurses are encouraging me to take sips of fluid and so then I start choking this back up I'd fall asleep and I'd vomit up or retch up the fluids that I had swallowed and that was going into my lungs so then I got what we call aspiration pneumonia well how does that work well if you have contents from your mouth or your esophagus your food tube or your stomach enter into your lungs these are dirty areas going into a clean area your mouth and your food tube and your stomach have bacteria and of course your stomach has that acid in it so you're also creating a chemical irritant to the lungs and so i aspirated and my oxygen levels fell in my blood and i was short of breath And so finally, early in the morning, I got the nursing supervisor in, and I said, put me in the ICU because I think I'm dying out here on the floor. The nurses were exasperated. They were blaming me because I was demanding that they give me the suction so I could suction myself out. And I'm bringing up this thick yellow mucus and they think that I'm traumatizing my airway, but there's no blood. So that's not true. But, you know, they just didn't have the training. Well, fortunately, I got into the ICU, and I actually wrote a lot of my own orders to get everything started in a hurry and got all of my friends in there who were specialists in lung and abdomen and surgery and GI and cardiology, all the different specialties that I needed. So what happens then is I'm in the ICU. I get a CAT scan of my chest. It shows the infiltrates, the pneumonia from aspirating, sat down and looked at it with the radiologist or rather he came in the room and looked at it with me. I wasn't moving out of the room at that time. or I can't remember for sure. Maybe when I went for the CAT scan, uh, I went right into the radiologist's office because it's in the same department, radiology, and we looked at it together. I think that's what happened, but of course, I'm a little blurry on some of this because of the medications that they had me on for pain and anxiety. Not that I took a lot of it, but You know, you take a little bit and it goes a long way in a guy like me because I don't take drugs. I don't use sedatives. I don't use narcotics just rarely. And so I had the aspiration pneumonia and the interns who are very judicious in trying to do something, they were giving me IV fluids. And then I got water overloaded. My kidneys were slowed down a little bit and I went into what we call atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heart rhythm at the top of the heart. And my heart rate at the bottom was about 140 to 150. And I'm short of breath off of what the interns had started and put me on amiodarone, which is a potent antiarrhythmic. It, it is meant to stop the top of the heart from beating irregularly and get you back into a normal rhythm. Got the water medication in my veins, so I diureced. And as I diureced, Uh, I got better in terms of breathing, uh, less swelling, and after a day on the IV antiarrhythmic amiodarone to correct the rhythm disturbance at the top of my heart, I got back into a regular rhythm, normal sinus rhythm, we call it. And you say, well, Doc, why did you go into this funny rhythm? Well, as we get older and we stretch the two chambers at the top of the heart, what we call the atria or the receiving rooms, uh, that can irritate the cells inside there. And also there's just the, the predisposition as we age and family genetics and high blood pressure, uh, leaky valves, all the things that tend to come with age can make the atria more irritable. And then there are cells inside of the atria especially on the left atrium. The left atrium receives blood back from the lungs, so the right atrium receives blood back from the body, it pushes it into the right ventricle, the right ventricle pumps that blood out into the lungs, and then that's aerated and the carbon dioxide is taken out, oxygen is picked up. Then it goes back into the left atrium because it has to get down to the left ventricle, which is the big pumping chamber that pumps blood to the body. So the left atrium seems to be the main culprit when we have atrial fibrillation. And so, with a little fluid overload, the atria stretch a little bit, uh, a little history of high blood pressure, uh, age, uh, little leaky valves, all the things that we have as we get older tend to make the atria more irritable. And so, these abnormal areas that are stretched and irritated can fire off irregularly. And then, all of a sudden, you've got the atria that are firing off from different sites within the atria at two to 300 times a minute. Of course, not all those beats will get down into the ventricle in a normal person, but your heart rate can go up to 150, 160. And, of course, over a long period of time, that's deleterious, plus you don't have the two chambers uh, coordinated. They're not synchronized, so you're not having efficient blood movement through the heart. Some beats, will be more blood, some less. And you can imagine that if you have a pump that's not not coordinated well with its feeder, that it's not going to be as efficient. And all this adds up to more problems. So here I am in the ICU. I've got aspiration pneumonia, congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation. My bowel shut down. And, uh, of course, I don't feel well either. (laughs) I'm having a hard time peeing, so they're having to catheterize me. You know, the whole thing, everything, IV fluids, IV antibiotics, IV medications for the heart, water medications coming in and pain and anti-anxiety boy was I having fun I'm telling you the most amazing part of it is that I remained fairly lucid through all of this and I was putting in a lot of my own orders to make sure that things got done in a hurry and the assistant administrator and the CFO are coming in and yelling at me you can't put in your own orders and the, the doctors are saying how do you do that we don't know how to do it of course I made them pay to show them how to get into the computer system and put in my own orders But I did it. I kept my wits about me, and I made it through, and I got out of the hospital. And the sutures were supposed to come out. They were actually staples were to come out two weeks after the surgery. So the Thursday after I got out of the hospital, the Friday after I got out of the hospital, my wife took all the staples out of my belly. Everything looked good in the morning. By the afternoon, a little bit of the midline incision had opened up about an inch or two of it, and I started leaking fluid. I'm like, oh, my God, I've got an infection. And so I went back to the hospital Friday night a week ago, week and two days ago, and we got another CAT scan, and it showed a little leakage from, not from the bowel or the stomach, but from the lining around the bowel and stomach where the fluid is that makes everything kind of swish around in our belly nicely and smoothly. We call it peritoneal fluid. We have fluid also in our chest which allows our lungs to swing around and move. If you didn't have that, you'd have a lot of problems. You couldn't couldn't function efficiently. Your bowel would be somewhat trapped and and be unable to move efficiently. So we have this and there's a little bit of this fluid coming through the midline incision, and there's a little track that is visible on the CAT scan. So I go back into the hospital because this is abnormal, and I think I've got a little infection. I'm back on antibiotics couple of days of that, and I'm feeling better. Got out on Monday, six days ago, and came home. The leakage continued. It's starting to slow down now. And I'll call all my friends, surgeons and radiologists. These are the guys that deal with belly leaks most frequently because the surgeons open the belly with their knife, and the radiologists stick things into the belly with their, their probes and their catheters. And everybody says, wait, don't do anything because I'm saying – Damn! I want to get this fixed, and I want it fixed now. I got to get back to work. The wife says, "Well, you're going back to work no matter what." God bless her. She's she's my tough little uh, Korean nurse practitioner. She was in the she was in the Korean army. She made her way through nursing school in South Korea <clears throat> with a military uh, uh, scholarship, kind of like going to Annapolis or. West Point Military Academy only their specialty was nursing and they were the nurses for the South Korean Army for the Republic of Korea so she's a pretty hard-headed gal and of course she's worried too you know and she's crying at times because she thinks I'm going to die and I'm reassuring her from my deathbed that I'll make it and I'll be back don't worry but at any rate, she made it through, and I think she probably suffered more than I did because I don't think she got any medication like I did, so her anxiety levels were even higher than mine. But she's also a nurse practitioner, so she is kind of like a a, a mini-doctor, an intern, and she's taking care of me at home and fussing at me and changing my dressings and starting IVs and Putting the antibiotics in my bloodstream and making me take my medications and, you know, pretty much kind of herding me around like I'm one of, her, uh, one of her pets. And I think that in marriage a lot of times that's exactly what men become to the women. We're just – we're their pets, the ones that they love, of course. There's no doubt about that. So she's keeping me moving and getting everything done, and I'm getting better, and the leakage is slowing down and I'm well enough that I went in and did a little dictation at the office yesterday. I'm going to probably go in again this afternoon. I walked over and said hi to the neighbors who have been so concerned about me, Ken and Barbie, and I appreciate that. And all the people who have been so sweet and taking care of me, Al Katz and David Samuelson and uh, Robin and Gary Katz and all the friends and peoples and nurses who showed nothing but love and uh, showered attention on me. And I am I can't tell you how, Grateful I am to everyone for the moral support as well as the medical support that that they gave me. And a shout-out has to go to the ICU nurses, who are real lifesavers at St. Pete General. And they are very skilled. Uh, I was impressed with their ability to take care of any problem that came up. And I was also grateful that they uh, collaborated with me and discussed things with me. I think that's important if you're going to uh, get adequate care as a patient, you need to have good rapport, not only with your doctor, but also with the nurses. And uh, if you feel that your level of care is inadequate, you're more than uh, welcome to suggest to your doctor that you don't think you're getting the care you need and you might need to be moved to a higher level. So there's different levels in the hospital. There's a general floor where you have general care, uh, surgical floor, you have a telemetry floor where you're on a a telemetry monitor to see what your heartbeat is, if you have heart problems but you're not sick enough to be in the ICU. Then there's a step-down unit, which is the unit that you send patients to after they're in the intensive care unit. And then you get up to the intensive care unit, the coronary care unit, the trauma uh, intensive care unit, different, different intensive care uh, divisions that take care of people depending on what the problem is. In a small hospital like St. Pete General, we only have one intensive care unit. And that takes care of everything major. And so these women are well-versed in a number, and the guys too, in a number of areas. And they were superb. And I have nothing but praise for them. And I'm also grateful for the doctors who took care of me. But I want to get to when we're, after the break, we'll come back and we'll talk about how to be a patient. You know, it's not easy. It's not easy. I mean, you've got IV antibiotics going, you're in heart failure, and your, your heart's in an irregular rhythm, you've aspirated and you've got pneumonia, you're in the critical care unit. And then as you get better, uh, you get to the point of discharge, and there's the whole shamil uh, with discharge medications. It's a complex and what you're supposed to do. There's multiple doctors involved, and they may be giving contradictory orders, and they may be busy and not even reading what the other guy did. And so you have to continually stay on top of all this or a family member uh, to see if everything is being coordinated and done correctly. And it's, it's never easy, especially when you're really sick. And a lot of people are not familiar with the medical world and the intensive care unit can be very intimidating. It wasn't for me because, of course, I've worked in the intensive care unit most of my career. And I have a good idea of what goes on and what to expect. But for the average layman coming into this setting, it, it is really a frightening thing. I can see that. And I understand that. I understood it before. But, of course, it's always good to have a little refresher course <laughs> when you're the caregiver as to what the recipient of your care is going through. And to have in mind what they're feeling and thinking and how they're acting and reacting so you can anticipate as a doctor or a nurse and help answer their questions and help them to ask the right questions. A lot of the questions I get are not really, um, they're not really on target because people don't have the medical expertise or they're very anxious, especially when it's a loved one. And they're they are wanting you to reassure them that everything's going to be okay. And that's not always the case. You know, It's not always going to be okay. There are times when you have to be Frank with people. You have to be honest, and you have to say, you know, it, it's it's bleak. I don't think they're going to survive this, or it's a terminal cancer, or the heart attack is so big that I'm not sure that we're going to be able to rescue it. Uh, it's too late, or you're in heart failure, and and there aren't many options left. And there, there are times when you have to go in and tell people, this is just not going to not going to work, no matter what we do. And but you always have to try. I mean, unless it's just tremendously hopeless, and you know the patient's going to die within the next 24 to 48 hours. But a lot of times, I'll go in and the family will say, well, what do you think? And they're not ready to let go. They're hesitant, and they're unsure, and they're afraid, and they, they don't know what to do. And I say, well, let's give it another 24 to 48 hours. Let's see what happens with this treatment or this medication or this antibiotic even though I don't think they're going to make it occasionally, people turn around and they, they fool me. So that puts the family at ease. And if they sign the form that says do not resuscitate, you know, do not perform CPR, and, or the form that says comfort measures only, which means we stop everything except medications that will keep the patient more comfortable, like oxygen and morphine and anti-anxiety medication, Uh, Uh, It's tough for a lot of people to do that because they feel like they're the ones that are pulling the plugs on their family member, which is not true. And I would always tell them, and I'll tell the interns to tell them this too, the house staff, and this is important that we let the patients know this. Ultimately, it's not their decision to pull the plug, to stop the treatment, to say it's hopeless. That's the doctor's responsibility. You're just giving the doctor permission to make that decision. In Florida, it's law. So, I don't want any family members or any nurses or any interns or residents to think that it's their decision to make and that they're taking somebody's life by stopping the medical intervention that seems to be keeping them alive. Ultimately, it's my result, my responsibility and the results and outcomes are on my shoulders and not on you the family or you the power of attorney or you the person who is the caregiver. It is ultimately my decision and there's a lot of little nuances that happen in the intensive care unit that we need to know about as we're aging and getting sicker and having more problems where it requires us to go in for surgeries and for therapies and treatments for stents in our arteries and uh, resection of cancers and all the various things that pop up when we're critically ill and having problems. I'm going to take a break at this point and grab a cup of joe, and when I come back, I'm going to fill you in on how to be a good patient, especially if you're in the intensive care unit. If you have any questions, by the way, you can call in and ask me. I am at 877-969-8600, that's 877-969-8600, and if you have questions about being a patient or how to survive an intensive care unit. You can feel free to call me after the break. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD.
2: With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. There are unconfirmed reports now that at least six boys, those ones that were stuck in the cave in Thailand along with their soccer coach, have been rescued today by the efforts of the Thai military. Twelve boys in all and the soccer coach in there. We're getting unconfirmed reports that perhaps as many as six are free and the rescue operation continues. It is dangerous and it is tedious. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been talking with Japanese Foreign Minister Taro Kono They've confirmed how the two nations are working with South Korea in a joint effort to achieve a denuclearized North Korea. North Korea has been balking lately on some issues. And authorities have released the names of a couple killed in an explosion in their New Jersey home yesterday, a 73-year-old and a 72-year-old. It's unclear what caused the blast.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible, Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674.
3: Writing a Christian book, you're doing an amazing thing, getting it all down on paper. But once you've got the manuscript... Then what? Well, you can spend a year or more trying to find a publisher, or you can cut right to the chase. Make your book real with Zulon Press. Finding a publisher is time-consuming and uncertain. With Zulon Press, things are quick and definite. They specialize in one thing: helping Christian authors put their books in print. Zulon Press is a division of Salem Communications, the same people who bring you this nifty radio station.
0: Do you love a hot dog or hamburger at the ball game? Then you need to bring your appetite to Spectrum Field every Monday. Your $14 ticket includes all you can eat. That's right, you can chow down on all of your ballpark favorites like hamburgers and hot dogs and many other concession favorites. All you care to eat.
1: Just $14 gets you a ticket to the game and all you can eat. Make sure you come hungry. Visit threshersbaseball.com. Threshers Baseball, get hooked.
0: Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast.
2: Partly sunny today with a shower or thunderstorm in the area. High today, 91. Then partly cloudy skies this evening, low 76. Tomorrow we'll have a mix of clouds and sunshine and a high of 91. Then partly sunny on Tuesday with a shower, thunderstorm possible. High 90. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Holly Holdren, 4 A.M. 860, The Answer. This is it.
1: I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, coming at you on AM 860, TheAnswer.com. I'm at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. I'm talking about my recent ordeal uh, where I had abdominal surgery, had a ventral hernia repair, and I discussed how that was uh, performed at the first half of the show. And also I had a sleeve uh gastrectomy where they take out part of the stomach for problems like obesity, sleep apnea, uh and ventral hernias of course because if you have a big fat pad in your belly it's going to keep pushing all that bowel and everything out into the the tear between your your two rectus muscles which are the the six pack the abs muscles on either side of your midline. So I've got a an incision from eh, from the the bottom of my chest down to my belly button and I got about six more holes in my abdominal wall where the surgeon had to put his uh, fiber optic scopes, laparoscopic scopes in, and do the sleeve resection and also uh, tack the uh, two sides of the abdominal wall back together, tuck everything in. It's a pretty, you know, it's a a pretty uh, traumatic procedure for the patient. It's a big deal. I think, though, that Being as well, I don't think I know that as being a physician, I was in a unique position to be aware of what was going on and to insist on certain things be done and to insist that certain things be stopped. And I think there's a way that we can do this as a patient. We can be appropriately assertive. That's a that's a big mouthful right there. How do you be appropriately assertive? How do you say to your doctor, "Are you sure?" Uh, Did you think about this or could it be that? And, you know, I actually appreciate it when my intelligent patients will look up things on the Internet and will ask me and challenge me. And increasingly, they're bringing in things that I have not read yet. There's just so much going on out there. And they will say, have you considered this? Could it be that? Uh, The differential includes this, the diagnosis doesn't seem to fit the classic and what's your experience with this. And so I think it's important, at least it was for me and and for my patients who are actively involved in their care, that we have some idea of what's going on. Of course, as a layman, we're not going to know all the nuances and all the ins and outs, but if you say your bowels shut down, it's not working, that it's paralyzed temporarily from the surgery because when they open the belly and do things to the bowel or, uh, Manipulate the bowels, the small and large intestine, they can get fussy and they'll shut down and they won't squeeze. And so you'll just have air and fluid sitting in there. And then we have to do other things. So you have these problems where you don't really know exactly why or what it is. But I think it's appropriate to answer or to ask questions and to receive appropriate answers from your physicians and your caregivers and to say, well, you know, I'm. I, is my stomach working is are my bowels moving and you can always say look I, I feel nauseous i can't take anything my belly hurts i'm all blown up and your doctor says oh it's it'll be fine and i say well hey dude can you get a, an x-ray of my in my belly it's just a plain film it's no big deal we call it a flat abdomen or a kub uh, flat abdomen you just you' you can lay there in bed and they can put the a cassette under you and with a portable x-ray machine, bring it right into your hospital room and take an x-ray and see if you have air and fluid levels in your bowel that would mean that your bowel's not working. And if it's not working, then you don't want to put anything more in your stomach. And we may even need to put a tube down into your stomach and suck out all the secretions that come from the stomach normally so that it doesn't fill up the small and large intestines even more. So these are little nuances that we need to think about when we're in the hospital. If you have pain, you need to let people know. If the pain is, is severe, then you tell them, and the nurses will say, what's your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? That's the popular thing to use now, and I don't think I ever said I had a 10. Uh, that was 7 or 8, and by the time I was leaving the hospital, it was down to 1 or 2. Uh, and, and, you know, you expect that if you poke a hole through the muscle belly, through the muscles of the belly, I mean, you're going to have pain (laughs) when you cut somebody open, they're going to have incisional pain. So these are expected parts of recovering from this kind of surgery. And of course my stomach was a third the size and it hurt because it had been chopped up and that's another source of pain. So I had two separate sources of pain. One was the, that gnawing feeling in my stomach right underneath, underneath my breastbone. And the other was the incisional pain and the holes in my belly that had gone through muscle. So I I had a double whammy. But I felt lucky that everything was so well controlled and taken care of. But, you know, if you're not a doctor and you don't know what to think and don't know what to ask for and don't understand what's going on, it's even more important that you question your caregivers. And you can question appropriately. And even the nurses on the floor. They did not understand the complications of having a, gas, a partial gastrectomy, a sleeve gastrectomy. They didn't understand that the swelling could make it so that the stomach wasn't contracting and that the fluid couldn't get through the stomach into the small intestines. And so you have to help walk them through that. Unfortunately, the uh, couple of the nurses didn't think I kn- knew what I was talking about Uh and I don't blame them. I mean, they just, you know, they're not intensive care unit nurses. They're not post-operative nurses uh, for major problems. They're for minor surgeries, mostly orthopedic. But at any rate, I was aware enough that I knew that things weren't being done properly, and I got myself moved to the unit. And you say, well, what can I do? I'm not a doctor. Well, you can say, I want you to call my doctor, please, and let him know that I'm throwing up or my bowels aren't moving and I'm all bloated and I'm nauseous or that my chest pain is back or I'm having a hard time breathing. And you can ask the doctors to check your oxygen levels in your blood. You can ask the nurses. They can do that with with a non-invasive little thing they put on your finger and we can check the percent or the saturation of oxygen in your blood with that. You can ask for that you can say look I, I i'm i'm feeling really weak my blood pressure is dropping i'm not eating and drinking do i need more iv fluids and do i need more sodium chloride and water in my bloodstream these are simple things that you can ask for or my white blood count was up the intern told me it was up today and uh you know am i infected and if so where is it do we need to work that up do i need to be on antibiotics because of the procedure that I've had or the condition that I'm in am I in heart failure you know, I'm having a hard time breathing My oxygen levels are dropping could this be related not only to my lungs from the pneumonia but could I have heart problems too and you are more than welcome to ask me that and you should feel comfortable enough to ask your doctors if you're hospitalized for the same thing. And there is non-invasive testing we can do. They came in and did an ultrasound of my heart, which is called an echocardiogram. And you certainly are more than welcome to have that done too. And if people say to me, you know, could it be my heart? Then I will say, well, let's get an echocardiogram. Let's get an EKG. Let's work you up and see what's going on. And even if the heart itself is not the problem and it's all in the lungs, I can see if the pressure and the right side of your heart is elevated, is up, because it's having a, a harder time squeezing blood through the lungs because of the infection or the emphysema or the asthma or the scarring in your lungs, the asbestosis, whatever it is, I can see indirectly how the lungs are doing. And if I see the pressure up in the right side of the heart, then I know that you're having problems in your lungs most of the time. That's the, that's the place where it comes from. Rarely we'll see a blocked uh, uh, valve that goes out of the right ventricle and leads into the main pulmonary artery, the artery that goes to your lungs, that those things are usually picked up in childhood and neonatal. They're congenital diseases, and rarely do we see those in adulthood. So mostly we're dealing with the lungs, and so there are things that you can ask the doctor to do. And you can say, look, my heart rate's fast. What's causing this? Do I need an EKG and an ultrasound in my heart? Uh, I feel like my lungs are filling up with fluid. I'm coughing up this yellow-green stuff. Can we get a CAT scan in my chest? Because the X-ray doesn't always show pneumonia. It just doesn't always show it, especially in the early stages. The CAT scan is much more sensitive than a plain X-ray for viewing the lung fields and seeing what's going on. We can see blood clots. We can see lung infections. We can see scarring in the lungs. We can see all kinds of things that you may not pick up on a plain x-ray. So it's important to say, do I need this procedure done? CAT scan on my chest, my lungs, an ultrasound in my heart, a check of the blood gas for oxygen levels in my blood and see if they're adequate. See if I'm panting because I'm short of breath or I'm panting because I'm in pain or whatever it is that's making me breathe fast. By the way, if you have any questions about any of this and about being a patient, I'm at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. So what else do I need to, to do if I'm a patient? Well, you need to be appropriately assertive. You need to communicate with all the doctors and nurses who are taking care of you. You need to, as best you can, pay attention to the treatments that you're being given. So if one doctor comes in and says, I think it's a lung infection, I'm starting antibiotics, and another doctor comes in and says, well, I'm going to start antibiotics, he may not have checked or she may not have checked to see if you're already on antibiotics. And you can say, well, Dr. Jones said that he was going to start them. So you know, if you don't mind, please check my chart before you start another antibiotic because there's a lot of redundancy and unnecessary treatments that go on in hospitals because of the number of consultants that are involved. In the intensive care unit, it's best to have one person who's ultimately in charge, and we call that the intensivist or the pulmonologist. They're the people who take care of intensive care as well as specialty trained intensivists. And they become the quarterback. They become the person that calls all the plays and makes sure everything goes through them. And if there's an intern working with them, you need to ask that intern or resident or fellow who's in training exactly what's going on a lot of times they'll spend more time with you than your doctor will because the doctors are busy then they're in and out and the interns and residents and fellows may not have as many patients to take care of so there's a whole chain of command and make sure that the physicians are coordinating with each other make sure that their orders are appropriate as as best as you can understand them you can always ask the nurses what they think because they certainly have opinions, especially in the intensive care unit, uh, and they'll voice them readily to you. And it's kind of fascinating to be on the other side of the, uh, of the bed, uh, be in the bed, and hear the nurses tell me things that they wouldn't dare say around the doctors, but as a patient, they would tell me what they think. So it was, it was kind of fun, really. I, I had a, a real good refresher course on the interaction between doctor, nurses, and patients. And I have to say the nurses are going to be there, and they're going to be the ones who take care of you in the intensive care unit on a a minute-by-minute, an hour-by-hour basis, and they usually have a couple of patients so they can take care of the more critically ill and pay more attention, And, and there is a lot more that's required. I mean, you have IV fluids, you have antibiotics, you've got breathing treatments, or you're on a ventilator or you're on uh, medications for your heart or your heart's being paced by a pacemaker that's been put in temporarily or your bowels are are in an uproar from the surgery and they're not working. And there's a lot of things that have to be addressed and cannot be addressed by a doctor who's just making a 10-minute visit once a day. So the nurses are your lifeline. They're the person that will throw you the rope and you hang on to that and make sure that they communicate your concerns as well to the doctors. Don't be threatening. I'm old enough that people threaten me. If you don't do this, I'm going to sue you. Or if I have a bad outcome, I'm going to sue you. and Or I'm going to come and get you. And, you know, 99% of the time, it's, it's just uh, um, an inability to... Adequately deal with their fear, and that turns into anger. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have not had good parenting or who have some other reason not to have been able to resolve all of their fear issues. And so this comes out as angry, threatening behavior. And I've had my life threatened. Uh, I had one patient die, and the family came in, and the son in law destroyed the room where the patient had died. And she's yelling for me, Where's that doctor? Where's that doctor? I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. Well, discretion being the better part of valor, I had to do the doctor's lounge where there's a two-inch thick oak door and a magnetic lock that you can't get through without your badge or the the key code. So if you want to turn the healthcare workers off in a hurry, threaten them, especially the younger ones. They will struggle. The older dogs who've been around the the park a little bit, been around the, the block a few times and sniffed the alleyways. We're not going to get upset, but we still don't appreciate it. And it makes it tough to uh, discuss with other members of the family when you have somebody who's threatening you. Be appropriately assertive. Appropriately assertive. Be polite. Uh, It's okay to be persistent until you feel that you've had an adequate answer. Be uh, direct. Uh, Try not to tell the doctor your life story when they're asking you what's the problem. You know, be, be more focused on I woke up this morning with a belly ache and uh, then I had a, a stool that had, was black and tarry, looked like I might be bleeding in my stomach or I had bright red blood coming out in my stool or my urine or I'm throwing up blood. And then say that, you know, I've had a little bit of annoying in my stomach lately and I tried some over-the-counter medications, some antacids and some Zantac and Tagamet and that really didn't fix the problem. But if you start saying, well, a year ago, my sister came in town and we had a big fight. And after that, I started binge eating and then I got drinking and I mean, you get all these things going and you give the story over the past year, uh, you're, you're not going to help the physician to focus down on what the real problem is. So try to think about what it is you want to say and the questions you want to ask before the physician comes in the room. You can always ask the Nurses for some support in that area, and they can help you in, in knowing how to address the physicians. Be grateful. Please, be grateful. I mean, we could be living in the 11th century, in which case, if you had a major complication from surgery, which was very limited back then, you know, they probably cut out stone, stones from the bladder and, and did some superficial abscesses. But, I mean, really, if you had a major problem like an appendicitis, It was 95% fatal. You died. There was nothing that could be done. Now, it's rare to have anybody die from a hot appendix or a hot gallbladder. So be grateful that we're living in the era that we are living in, that we're living in one of the most technologically advanced countries in the history of the world, that we have some of the best medical care in the world, some of the best trained doctors, and say, you know, thank my lucky stars. Oh, my gosh, I'm telling you. It could be a thousand times worse. I could not make it at all if I didn't have these resources. So be be grateful. Make sure you use the resources at hand. If you're a computer literate, uh, ask for your laptop or ask a family member to get on the computer and look up everything they can about this disease or this malady or this surgical problem and find out what the various treatments are. And you can do this even when you're coming in to visit your doctor in the office. It's okay to look things up. I don't mind that at all. I mean, if you come in and tell me about uh, some herbal medicine in Malaysia that cures cancer, uh, I'm, I'm going to have a raised eyebrow. You know, there, there has to be some science behind it. And there may be some herb or root that's grown in Malaysia that it can cure certain cancers or slow them down. And I'm not saying that it isn't there, but, you know, I can't practice that kind of medicine and doctors who are licensed in the state can't practice that kind of medicine. They have to practice evidence-based medicine. They have to practice medicine that's based upon community standards of care. They have to practice medicine that's based upon appropriate research. And, you know, Joe Blow saying, well, eight out of ten people that took my formula Z said they felt better is not uh, a scientific study. You know, we've gone over this before, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. I won't get into that too deeply. So research what it is that you're dealing with and have the appropriate questions and look for appropriate answers when you speak with your doctors. In the intensive care unit, you've got a lot of doctors coming in, so make sure you listen to what each doctor is saying as best you can. Or a family member, if you're sedated or you're on the ventilator or you're older and demented, and the family members can ask specifically, well, Dr. So-and-so said this and you're saying that, and I hear this frequently where one doctor will say it's bleak, I don't think you're going to make it, and another doctor says, well, we can take care of that, you'll be fine, and the patients are confused. So you need to really hone in. And even with cardiologists, uh, I had sent one patient over to one of the hospitals that deals with uh, major heart problems, has an open heart program, and puts in heart stents. And I had asked specifically for one of the guys I know who is an interventionalist. That's the guys that go in and they clean out the arteries around the heart and put in the stents. And they do a lot of the fancy stuff with the catheters through the groin and the, and the arm. And one of his partners came in and said, it's hopeless. You know, you better prepare your will. And he came in two days later and said, you'll be fine. And went in there, cleaned out the artery, got it opened up. The guy's got his ejection fraction back up to 40 to 50%. Uh, Normal is about 55 and up. He was at 25% before. That's the amount of blood you squeeze out. And so you have to really dig deep. and You can't just take one doctor's Uh, uh, assessment and prognosis and diagnosis. You have to say, let's get somebody else involved. And if your doctor's threatened and gets upset, then there's something wrong with your doctor. Now, the surgeons are more likely to get upset than, than the medicine men are because they're more the fighter pilots and... The medicine guys are more the bomber crews, the cardiologists, the nephrologists, the general internists, family practitioners. The surgeons are more the jet fighter pilots, and they think they can come in there and blast away all that disease, and you'll be better in no time. It doesn't work that way. So it's okay. Say, so let's get a second opinion. Or uh, do you think I need to see somebody? Uh, I have a lot of my patients have dermatologic problems, which we deal with in the office. And they say, do I need to see a dermatologist? And I say, no, I can take the skin cancer off here. I can even put on a little skin graft or I can do this or I can do that. And a lot of doctors have that armamentarium, that ability in their office to take care of problems, which will save you a trip to the dermatologist. Now, if 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 they say, look, you got something in your lung that's not normal, shouldn't be there. You say, should I see a, a specialist? It better say, yeah, we need to get the pulmonologist involved. We need to get the CAT scan. We need to, uh, if that comes back positive for a cancer or a tumor, we need to get the oncologist, the specialist in, in cancer involved. There's a number of people that have to be involved. The radiologists may be the ones that do the biopsies of the lumps and bumps inside our chest or belly because they have long needles and they can visualize the different organs with their... Various diagnostic modes, CT scan, x-ray, ultrasound, MRI. All these things are available to the radiologist, and they use these things frequently and do a good job with it. So you ask, do we need to get somebody else involved? Do I need this CAT scan? Do I need this x-ray? What about this medication? My sister-in-law is a nurse, and she read that with this uh, diagnosis that this new medication is being tried. Do you know anything about it? And don't forget to say please and thank you. Don't forget to say please and thank you. You know, those two words will go further than anything I know. And a smile will win you more friends you could ever want. So just even a brief smile when you see somebody, even somebody you don't like, if you smile at them, you know, most of the time they're going to respond and smile back. And so it's a good icebreaker whether you're sick with your doctor in the intensive care unit or whether you're uh, at the office and trying to deal with difficult uh, coworkers or employees or employers. Put on a little smile, baby. Brush that smile up. Getting close to the end of the show. Uh, What do you think, Bill? Did we tell it well today? (laughs) Those are
3: magic words that never get old. I'm glad you brought that up.
1: Yeah, yeah, it works. Uh, you know, there's some people that are sour pusses, and they're never going to say that. By the way, the woman I had on last week, she wanted me to say that she was a little bit over on her estimates of the quarterly cost of her thyroid, med- thyroid medications, but uh, I told her I didn't think that that was as important as the fact that they were just expensive, and that we need to figure out ways to get people help cheaper and. Um, You know, I'm exploring and contemplating that. Don't forget to ask for self-pay rates when you go to your doctor or your hospital if you don't have insurance. Love you guys. Appreciate you being with me this week. And I will be with you next week. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD